and thank you for tuning in to the Law Farm Podcast. From planting a seed to enjoying a meal, we all play a part in sustaining the growth of our local food systems. No matter what has brought you here, I hope you leave with some new ideas about supporting the food systems that support us all. The guests on the Law Farm Podcast are people doing work that inspires me, and I hope that inspiration keeps spreading. I'm your host, Michelle Namer, and this is the Law Farm Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the Law Farm Podcast. When it comes to the business of meat, Bill Cavanaugh is the man. Butcher by trade and training, he has worked in famous butcher shops, such as Flesher's in New York, and he also helped found Dunder and Heister in Pennsylvania. Most recently, he has moved to Vermont and is the meat specialist and the business incubator at a place called Mad River Food Hub that provides a processing, distribution, and storage hub for anybody doing food processing in Vermont. Is is that correct? Is it anybody who's doing food in Vermont? Anybody who's doing food in Vermont, absolutely. Fantastic. So with that, we have Bill Cavanaugh today, and I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much. Yeah, Did I miss? Me. Yeah, you're welcome. Did I miss anything in the intro that you'd like to share with us before we get going? Oh, nothing interesting, no. <laughs> Great. So let's, ah, there's so many places I want to start, because not only are you a butcher, not only do you know the business side of things, not only have you started a butcher shop and you're dealt with those regulations, but you are an awesome advocate for pasture-raised meat and regenerative farming. Let's start at the beginning. What got you into meat? Well, I mean, how much time do you have, I guess? But I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the medium-long version. So when I was in college, I was going to college in uh, Albany, New York, and I read a little magazine blurb. I think it was in, I want to say Food and Wine, maybe, about this uh, little hole-in-the-wall butcher shop in Kingston, New York, called Fleischer's. And it was this weird, grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised meats. I mean, really, um, this was probably, I don't know, 2006 or so. I mean, it was early early days for that sort of meat. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of my backyard. Let's take a drive down there. And, and we went down, and I was just sort of really blown away by these, you know, these men and women behind the counter with their, you know, tattoos and cutting up meat. And it just, it seemed really cool. And I was, I was into it, not really as a career, but just in general. I mean, we, we bought a little bit, bought some steaks and it was delicious. So we we did that for a few years and I just kind of, it kind of grew from there. You know, I, I graduated college, needed a job. A friend of mine was working on a organic farm as like a as like a delivery driver, like really not as a farm farmer at all, but the farm he was working for needed someone to work in the butcher shop and the rest is history, I guess. So was your degree in butchering? No. So my, um, my degree is a uh, public policy with a minor in philosophy, like everybody else who ends up as a butcher, I feel like. (laughs) Um, And I, my goal was really to go to law school and that was sort of the thing. And, tried that and wasn't my bag at all and and that was where I you know ended up 2009 nobody really wanted to hire a undergrad with a you know public policy degree and so just kind of went from there but I think that there's a lot of overlap in terms of 
you know, where the policy world is right now in, in, as it relates to farming, you know, organic pasture-raised farming. Absolutely. I'm over here, like, nodding very dramatically <laughs> as if that encourages your sight of it. I, I can feel it. I can feel it over here. There, there we go. So I, I definitely can imagine the overlap. And I must say that I think you landed in the right place. For those of you listening, Bill and I met at Slow Food Nations in Denver in the summer, and we met at a slow meat workshop. We were talking about slow meat and how we can help the farmers who are trying to do pastured meat and help the publicity around that sort of meat and, um, you know, and promote good quality meat products. And immediately you can see the passion that you have for this. So, Bill, I'm glad you ended up here. I feel like it's the right <laughs> choice if you needed any validation today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so um, maybe I should save this question for later, but I probably, I'm just going to go for it. What do you say to vegetarians out there who do that because they think it is the most environmentally friendly and humane thing they can do? Well, you know, that comes up a lot, actually, um, probably not surprisingly. You know, I really look at vegetarians and people like myself who are, you know, sort of very studious, conscious carnivores, I guess you could say, is really very similar. Um, we both looked at the the situation as it stands and, and really sort of realized that, that, you know, conventional meat is not not good for the environment, it's not good for animals, it's not good for, for human health, um, and really just kind of came to, to two not dissimilar conclusions, you know what I mean? I'm not myself this massive carnivore. I mean, I eat meat maybe once or twice a week, typically uh, chicken breast in my salad or small little sirloin steak one night. I mean, really not not a ton of meat, and I think that you know, it's sort of a cliche, and I feel like it's been said to death at this point, but I think you know, you need to eat you meaning you know the 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 general you you know eat less meat but but better meat um right so i really you know i think it's very easy to look at sort of conventional commercial meat production in this country and decide the hell with it i'm just not going to eat meat and i i totally get that mhm but that's why i'm so glad like sitting in the slow meat workshop for me as an attorney and as you know an eater more than anything and a little bit of a grower it was so nice for me to be in a place where I was hearing actual meat farmers actual producers talk about what it is that makes a product different and why they get so frustrated that meat in general has a bad rep when they are trying so hard to do so many good things but it's not always easy to find that transparency. You know, it was there in, in a workshop with about 25 people, but it's not always easy to find it. And that's why I get so tickled by what you're doing with the Food Hub, because it really does create a community where you guys know each other and you work together. Go ahead and tell me your take on what pasture-raised meat means, because sometimes I think we get confused with, pasture-raised, pasture-grass-finished, and all these different terms. Um, yeah. Is, is that too big of a question? Can you, like, concisely? No, it's, sort of... can, well, concisely. We'll see. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Don't need to be concise. Go for it. <laughs> you know, labeling claims as it relates to meat, I won't even get into, you know, the vegetable side of things, but as it relates to meat, all of the different claims you can make, uh, no antibiotic, no hormone, 
pasture-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished. You know, there's a million different claims out there. It's like the Wild West. I mean, I'm sure people have have heard recently about um, country of origin labeling and how beef raised in Argentina can be brought to the U.S. and sold as a product of the U.S. I mean, the the labeling situation is just a mess right now, Um, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, I I don't – I try not to throw the baby out with the bathwater when I think about labeling and, and, and those sort of claims because I do I do still feel like organic means something. Um, it has mm-hmm. been certainly co-opted. Um, same with grass-fed, same with pasture-raised. Those all mean something, but they only mean something to the extent that you as the consumer understand what that – person is saying by that no but i think i caught what you said and i like it and it's understanding what that person means by it. i think that's a, a big piece of it and it requires some work on the consumer's end right like i have to understand that a huge corporation who's mass producing meat when they say pasture raised it should maybe raise my eyebrow a little bit, and I might want to not to say that they're lying, not to say that they're wrong, not to say that they're even misguiding me, but I may want to dig deeper into that. So I think there's a big a big key to knowing who's using the label and, and kind of getting a feel from there. Yeah, and it's it's tough because you know there is sort of this onus on the consumer of you do a little bit have to know your farmer if if your goal is to eat sustainably and to support the right sort of agriculture, you do sort of have to know what's coming from where and who's doing what. When I'm walking through Whole Foods and I see a steak wrapped up in a in cellophane in the in the case and it says grass fed, I have some idea what that means. Maybe I do more than most people because I understand some of Whole Foods protocols, but you know, in general, you know, I sort of understand what that means. But when I go to the farmer's market and I see, uh, you know, Helm Notterman from Snug Valley Farm, name drop, uh, who does an amazing <laughs> job, amazing job raising grass-fed beef um, and selling it and, and sort of, you know, talking about what he does, I don't really have to ask that question anymore because I know him, mm-hmm. you know. So so that, I think, is a, is a big part of that. And that's a, a Vermont farm, I'm guessing? Yeah. Yep. That's the saddest part about all of this is you are so far away from me. So if I have any <laughs> listeners who are in Vermont, please go patronize these farms and all the other farms that we might mention. Please, for me, do it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you're, you're right. When it comes from a farmer that you know, it's definitely different. So you were working in a butcher shop. When yep. did you get the notion to go ahead and open your own butcher shop, and did you – know from the get-go, I think I know the answer to this question, but did you know from day one that your focus would be on sustainable pasture-raised meats? Well, so the, the shop I held open wasn't mine, I should say that. Um, okay. It was, I was working at Fleischer's consulting with a group in Pennsylvania who was looking to do similar to what Fleischer's was doing. So the, the concept okay. was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, my role was really to sort of put it all together. You know, and to, and to sort of put the help put the protocols in place, help put the you know the operation together, and that was a really cool opportunity because you know Pennsylvania specifically has a really awesome farming scene. I think almost sort of like how Vermont is, even on the you know pasture raised, sustainable, organic side. I was really kind of excited by what I saw there. So, do you think that your public policy background made you? Because to me, it sounds. 
there's a little bit of courage in you to just decide I'm going to help somebody open a butcher shop and navigate rules and regulations that might actually be different in that state. And to dive into all that takes takes a little bit of a backbone. Do you think having the public policy background helped you with the confidence to dive into that and help them out with getting that started and going? Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, the meat industry is really heavily regulated on the state level, and that gets complicated because it varies state by state. Right. Um, and then on the federal level, you know, through the USDA, you know, the, the rules and regs for certain things can reach into the hundreds of pages. So I think, you know, having some experience sort of reading that stuff, I think, has, has helped. And it also, I think, it has. it's nice to have a little perspective on kind of where some of these regulations came from, you know, and, and to sort of at least understand what the intent was and then to sort of work through that. Okay. That makes sense. So you dove through all that. Did Did you guys hire an attorney, I'm curious, in this process, or was it just bare-bones, white-knuckle research on your own? Well, so we had, in, in Pennsylvania, we did have counsel on retainer. I'm trying to think back. We didn't we didn't make a ton of use of, of his services. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. maybe of a situation when we did. More on the, on the labor side of things, mm-hmm. drafting employment contracts and that sort of thing. Really, you know, I think on the, on, on the state level, at least, it's really helpful to sort of get to know your state-level regulatory representatives. So your mm-hmm. meat inspection, if your state does that, or um, agriculture and markets, uh, you know, really just kind of not make yourself a nuisance necessarily, but, you know, call them as often as you need to get to get clarity. I found The squeaky wheel gets oiled, right? A little bit, yeah. Or the squeaky wheel gets his questions answered at least. <laughs> yeah. And did you have any other resources that you turned to Besides just knowing the people who were there and who were doing the regulating, were there other resources that you relied heavily on that you would suggest others? Well, I mean, in in general, um, I've always found other people in in the meat industry to be a really good resource. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really awesome listserv. I bet you didn't know people still did listservs, but uh, there's a listserv. <laughs> Attorneys uh, do listservs all the time. We're back yeah, in those guess, days, too. That's true. All right. Well, so there's, there's a listserv called the uh, Niche Meat Processors Association, and that basically is is sort of a who's who of people across the country who are doing small-scale slaughter, retail butchery, uh, pasture-raising animals, and that's such an awesome resource uh, just to get questions answered. Um, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. No, and, and, and the, you know, the people, the people who answer your questions will – shock you, you know, people who are very high up at the USDA or um, some big deal pasture-raised uh, meat farmers from out west, you know, it's just an incredible resource uh, as that's, far as just brain power. That sounds like an incredible resource. Is there a membership fee or anything? Nope, none. Oh, wow. Google it and sign up. Wow, great. Thank you. I hope somebody heard that and is writing it down. That does sound great to have instant access to answers. Do you think, because part of the reason why I do this podcast is to really just tip somebody over the edge who might be thinking, I'm passionate about food, I want to do food, because I think the whole sustainable food movement gets stronger when we start building it and creating more options. Do you think there is room in the markets around the nation for more butcher shops and more butchers and more sustainable meat processors, just like Dunder and Heister and just like Flushers? 
There's definitely room. Um, wh- what I would say is you need to be sort of smart about it. And what that, what I mean by that is that it's not, you know, in the, in the heady days of, you know, mid 2000s, I feel like it was really easy for a place like Fleischer's to open and, and thrive. You know, you got, mm-hmm. you know, front page of the New York Times food section and the food network is banging down your door and, and, you know, people are writing books about it. And I think that that has cooled off a little bit. Um, as sustainable food has gone mainstream. So I do think it is really important if you are going to start any sort of a food-based business, particularly meat, you have to be – you have to have a solid business behind it. You have to have a solid business plan, have, you know, solid idea of what your financials are. Um, But then, yeah, I I think that, you know, that being said, there's there's still a ton of runway to, to make that sort of thing happen. And that's interesting perspective to be smart about it. Can you sort of expound on that piece? Like at this point, with your experience with meat producers and meat people in particular, can you give us like one or two things that a smart business model in that realm might have to it? Well, so I can give you a really good example of a of a not smart business model. That's good um, too. So it's the end of August up here in Vermont. I'm looking out my office window. I can see tree leaves starting to turn a little bit. In the next few weeks, probably the next month or so, my phone at work is going to start ringing off the hook with farmers uh, in Vermont and, and elsewhere who are going to say to me, you know, I'm, I'm looking to harvest uh, my pigs. I've got 20 pigs out on pasture, beautiful pigs. Any supplements have been organic. You know, I, I go out and I read them bedtime stories every night. They're, they're beautiful animals. And they'll say, where am I going to sell them? And, and my answer is always, you know, you should have thought of this. A year ago. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that is that is my number one sort of axe to grind um, on, on the farming side of things, at least, is that you need to have a solid plan for marketing your, your product, meat or anything, really, well before you invest in feeders or start breeding or anything. You really need to know wh- who, your, who your, you know, target customer is and how you're going to mm-hmm. reach them. That's, mm-hmm. That is, like, number one. Mm-hmm. That's um, really good advice. That's really good advice because I think farming sustainably is something that we connect with on such a, a deep, heartfelt level sometimes. Mm-hmm. That it is, it is it is easy to see that I'm doing good in so many ways by farming this way. Um, I'm going to just try it and hope it you know works out. But you're right; it, t- it takes a lot of of research and deciding what's going to go and how's it going to go. Which kind of segues directly into your role as a business manager for the butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you in that role with Dunder and Heister? I was with Dunder and Heister about two years. Uh, okay. My goal there was to sort of help them get things up and running. Um, we opened a second shop while I was out there. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, and, you know, the the early days business startup life is, is certainly fun. It's, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. long, long days, long nights, but it's, it's it's fun. So, and did you ever come across anything unexpected? Well, I'm sure you did. This is probably a silly question. Unexpected things in being the business manager for a butcher shop, especially from the startup side, which I guess it was still startup, and maybe even the legal or regulatory side. Were there any completely unexpected surprises that still ring in your head today? Oh man. So many. Um, <laughs> just, you know, one that 
one that jumped out when you mentioned like the legal and regulatory side, and this is this is kind of a dumb thing, but it's an interesting example, I guess. Um, so we made, uh, you know, we we're a nose-to-tail whole animal butcher shop. We brought in whole pigs, you know, whole carcasses, broke them down into case-ready chops, made sausages with all the trim, um, and then the the very sort of, you know, the the real scraps of it we made into pet food, into like a like a raw dog food. That's awesome. And we worked with a veterinarian to get like, you know, this recipe together and we had it tested for protein content and stuff like that. And then one day out of nowhere, the state animal feed guy walked in the door and was like, what are you doing? You can't sell this. He's like, you're not licensed to sell pet food. And it just, that sounds like a really weird thing. It's so like tertiary to what we were doing there, but it like, mm-hmm. it like, became this weeks and months long saga of like, how do we get this license? What's the issue? Now are we being fined? What's, you know, what's happening with that? So, you Did know, you end up being fined or were you able to obtain a license and everything was cool after you know, that? I don't, I don't remember the specifics. We did, we did get a license and it was cool, but it was, you know, we would see our state inspectors and, and Pennsylvania doesn't do state meat inspections. So it was really just a, like a health inspection that we would have. Mm-hmm. We would see them once a year. We would see this pet food person like monthly, <laughs> so, and it, it just—it it became sort of this this thing. You know, I mean, I mean, we sold like I don't even know twenty pounds a month of this pet food. I mean, it really was a byproduct for us. It wasn't anything to do with our core mission, but it it you know became an outsized part of our thought process. Really, that's funny. There's so many moving parts with food. That I feel like there's this fine like balance. Like you have to start somewhere, right? You have to just get yep. going. But I feel like yep. it's just bound to happen that something like that will pop up, like exactly like that. Like you need your monthly visits for this <laughs> for this byproduct. Hey guys, that's yep. funny. And so, but now that transitions you and our conversation perfectly into working with the business incubation at the Mad River Food Hub. Can you talk a little bit about that role? Because it sounds, like, crucial to, you know, yeah. developing businesses in your area that do this. So my entire career, when I was um, working on the farm in the butcher shop, when I was working at Fleischer's, when I was at uh, Dender and Heister, it was all under state and local uh, meat inspection. Uh, really, mm-hmm. like I said, at, at Dender and Heister, once a year or so, state health department came through, did a walk through with a clipboard and we were inspected for another year. Um, what's happening up at the, the food hub. And when I learned about it, uh, it's been about two years now. Um, it's a, it's a USDA inspected facility, uh, which means there's a, there's a federal USDA inspector on site every day. Um, but it's, it's a shared use facility, which is, is unheard of. I mean, really, I don't know of anyone else in the country who has, shared use meat processing under USDA inspection. So I don't even know of anybody who does the shared use processing period. Yes, I think it is so cool. I'm glad that you brought that up and emphasized that. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Keep going. No, I mean so that was I mean really that was sort of that's what what brought me here. I mean we were we were looking to make a move, you know, Pennsylvania wasn't ever going to be long term for us and we love Vermont and and you know, it was sort of serendipitous that we heard about the food hub. I heard about the food hub and and ended up um, getting in touch and got a job and the rest is history. But, you know, it's, it was so interesting to me 
the concept of providing that for people because they can take their their products from their farm or, or source products from a local farm and create something that could be sold nationally or internationally because it has that USDA mark of inspection on it. Mm-hmm. Um, which for for a meat business to be able to get into that sort of wholesale market is a really good way to scale. Now you're not standing at a farmer's market all Saturday. You can actually, you know, distribute into Boston or into New York or or wherever. And you said you've been there for about two years, right? Almost two years on the dot, actually. Yeah. Okay. So in that time, have you actually had the privilege of watching a business, like, scale up like you're describing? Yeah. So when I first came on board, we had some customers who were sort of already there, kind of already doing their thing. But I um, came on board and met with a woman named Erica Lynch, who had gone to France and studied charcuterie uh, with some really old-school artisanal French charcuterie makers. Um, and she wanted to start a charcuterie company. And that was that was it. That was the that was my first conversation. She's like, I know how to do this. I want to start a business. And, and okay. we kind of went from there and, um, you know, worked on uh, getting some HACCP plans together, which is the food safety plan that you work under when you're under USDA inspection. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been in business now. Uh, about a year and a half or so, she's she's blowing up. I mean, in the state of Vermont, she's really well known as a as a charcuterie maker. She's supporting a ton of local farms. It's all uh, Vermont or New Hampshire meat that she's using, mm-hmm. um, and and she's really, you know, she's growing at a at an exponential rate at the moment. So we're we're really working on getting her to sort of as high of a possible level as she can um, in our facility. And then you know, really, the goal is. Eventually, when you're successful, you you graduate out into your own space. You know, yeah. we're really we're really an incubator. We want people to kind of do that first one, two, maybe three years of the business, and then and then launch on out. That is so neat. And I I looked at a picture online of the facility, and I'm going to try and describe it. I'll hopefully be able to link to a picture um, as well, so people can actually see it. But um, so you you walk into hold on where is the picture I found I'm trying to find it now you walk into just like an open space and then you keep going and there are like three different processing rooms is that correct and one is like yep. twice the size of the other two yep and so you correct me if I'm wrong but I have a vision of food processors coming in for the day saying hey to each other and then going into the processing room drilling out whatever product they're drilling out, cleaning it up really well, and then leaving for the day and waving goodbye to the folks that are there, too. I mean, is that just what it's like day to day? That was was a really beautiful vignette. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly (laughs) how it goes. Um, You know, we're not, uh, you know, we're not full to the brim all day, every day. I mean, we have four processing rooms. Um, We do occasionally have four customers in at once. Sometimes it's three. You know, it really depends. Um, I mean, one of the really cool things, that I love about my job is getting to see customers interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a, a company come in for a time last summer uh, and they were doing frozen pizzas and you wouldn't think frozen pizzas would require a USDA inspection, but the second you put pepperoni on a pizza, surprise, you're a meat processor. So <laughs> they were in making their pizzas and they wanted to make a sausage pizza. Well, lo and behold, the guy across the hall is making sausage. So, and you know, now there's sort of that, that connection. oh my gosh, I love that <laughs> so much. 
Wow. It, so let's, if we're talking about the details and the minutiae, let's kind of talk about maybe, so how many, how many employees are at Mad River Food Hub? Out of well, so there's there's myself and we have a logistics manager because uh, we do distribution and storage as well. So we have a, a dry storage warehouse and we have trucks on the road doing distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have myself, the logistics manager, and then we have four uh, drivers who are on the road every day. Okay, so you you do deal with the ins and outs of getting people in. So talk to me a little bit. I know there are requirements for being able to rent out your space. Can you talk about the requirements and, like, the rental in general and, you know, what people come in and, and are what's expected of them and what they have to pay and, and how that works? Yeah, so we do um, – we charge by the room by the day. So you come in uh, one day in a raw processing room is $150. Um, that covers – USDA processing has a, has a sort of strict time limit. So you can only process between 8 and 4.30. Um, under inspection. Anytime before or after that is, is you can't do it. So okay. 150 a day for that. In terms of, you know, requirements to come in, I personally try and make it as low of a barrier to entry as possible. And there's there's other shared use kitchens out there, you know, more commercial kitchen spaces that have really kind of strict requirements on you need to submit a business plan. You need to put down this sort of deposit. And, you know, my philosophy and the the philosophy of the Food Hub has always been bring people in, especially, you know, because we're really trying to work for farmers and make things work for people who are maybe not trying to do this as a full-time career, but to sort of make something out of, you know, their animals. So it's basically come in, we need – Proof of insurance listing us as additional insured, and that's really it as far as paperwork. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's come in. I typically will will get in there and work with you for for you know a couple hours or most of the day just to kind of get a feel for your process and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, it's kind of it's up to you as the as the processor to to make the most of it. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time working through you know cost analysis and stuff like that. And but at the end of the day, it's you know come in and it's it's your space for the day. Do what you need to do. That's that's awesome. And so when people do use you as a resource for that business incubation, is that included in just the rental space in general and just having access to you to create this conversation? Or do you also do separate workshops or one-on-one sessions or any sort of guidance like beyond that? So in terms of Processing at the food hub, I like to say that I come free. I mean, I, you know, you, you pay your, <laughs> you pay your money for the day. You got full access to me. I'll hop in there and show you how to use a piece of equipment or give you some pointers on, you know, some, some good production practices. Um, I'm just, I'm just there doing my thing. Um, That's awesome. I do also do, uh, through the food hub, um, and, uh, Vermont Technical College, I do, uh, butchery classes. So, um, a few times a year, I'll do a week-long um, sort of start-to-finish, nose-to-tail uh, butchery. So we'll do beef, pork, lamb, chicken, um, and kind of go through the ins and outs of the actual processing, you know, the actual butchery, uh, but then also get into sort of how do you look at your yields and what is a, you know, how do you calculate your margins on this animal and what's the best way to market it and, and that sort of thing. Um, so that's been, that's been a really cool way to sort of keep – my butchery skills going and also help, you know, train the next generation as much as possible. That's so awesome. 
I can't think of any other questions about Mad River Food Hub generally, but I think that's because I've never been there or walked in or seen what was going on. Is there anything unique to the Food Hub that we haven't talked about or that hasn't been highlighted that should be? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would say about the Food Hub, and, and this is more for, you know, we have a lot of people who get in touch with us who are interested in sort of doing their own version of the Food Hub wherever they are. Mm-hmm. So. The one thing that I like to sort of highlight about what we do is, yeah, we have the shared use space and we do the the processing and the incubation, but we're also a really big community resource as far as our storage and distribution goes. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a freezer that fits, on a good day, it fits about 60 pallets, and that is a huge resource for local farms who harvested some Whatever. Someone just dropped off a pallet of tomatillos the other day. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe you slaughtered a couple of beef and you need a place to store it while you uh, parcel it out to your CSA customers. Um, mm-hmm. That's been that's been a really big thing for us where our storage, we have a waiting list for uh, freezer and cooler storage right now. And it's I think it's a pretty big resource for the community. So that kind of leads me to the question that I asked about just opening butcher shops in this realm is, is there unlimited, I mean, I guess I'm not unlimited space, but do you think if someone has the idea of, of getting something like this going, is there room for these everywhere? Because I sort of feel like there would be, especially yeah, for yeah. the storage piece. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really a matter of having a smart business plan behind you or having, having good advisors on board um, who can kind of think through some of the challenges. Because there are challenges relating to, you know, where are your customers coming from? If you're in an area where maybe there aren't a ton of farmers or, you know, not a ton of people who are knocking on your door for storage, you're going to have a difficult time filling that space. So it's really a matter of, you know, if you're in, I don't know, rural Missouri and you don't really have, you know, there's a couple farms, but maybe they're, you know, maybe they'll use you, maybe they won't. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. need a, you know, 40,000 square foot facility. You can, you can scale right. it to something that's a little more feasible. Right. Is is Waitsfield, Vermont, where y'all are located, a rural area or urban, or is it somewhere in the middle? What is it like there? So we are located in the Mad River Valley, which is this beautiful little valley right in the Green Mountains. There's uh, really there's four towns. There's Waitsfield, Warren, Moortown, and Duxbury, and there's about two thousand people. So we're we're pretty we're pretty rural, but. You know, this being Vermont and this sort of corner of Vermont is incredibly agricultural. A lot of, mm-hmm. ton of small farms, young startup farms, a lot of food entrepreneurs. I mean, just in our little valley alone, we've got, you know, I can list probably two dozen really cool food businesses, all doing, you know, local, organic, all that stuff. And that, that leads me to my next question, which was, is the success of Mad River Food Hub and this idea, do you think it's partly because Vermont and the area that you're in are so focused on local food and, and good, what I call good food? Um, yeah. Do you think it's a char- characteristic thing of where you are? I can definitely say as somebody who's, you know, I've lived and worked in New York, Pennsylvania, spent some time in Massachusetts. You know, I can definitely say that there's something unique about Vermont. And some of that is sort of the you know, lovey-dovey, hippie nature of it. But then I think a big part of it is is policy. I mean, we have a really, um, really supportive 
state government who who puts a lot of emphasis and a lot of money, honestly, uh, behind sort of local organic farms. So there's a lot of, like, really smart people spending a lot of time trying to think about how to make Vermont as sustainable as possible. So that, to me, is a takeaway for, for other states is to sort of, you know, get the get the policy straight, and a lot of stuff will mm-hmm. kind of fall in line. You're right that that policy piece is important. Absolutely. Well, and and one of the cool things about Vermont is that there are really – I mean, it's like this everywhere, but, I mean, specifically people I know who are so smart and so, like, really well-versed in in what sustainable agriculture looks like who are doing this work that, like, in a lot of ways I feel like I'm in good hands. Well, resources, again. I know I asked you about resources when you were opening the butcher shop and Mm -hmm. as the business manager – what about the resources that you use? Because being USDA inspected regularly, I'm sure you have a lot of interactions, um, helping people with starting different types of food processing businesses has a whole plethora of different you know, nuanced consequences. Consequences sounds heavy, but just results. Where do you turn when you have questions or clients have questions and you want to answer them for them? What do you use? Well, I mean, I think a big resource for me, and, and, and this is the case in a lot of places, but it does vary state by state, is our uh, state agricultural extension. We have an awesome extension program here in Vermont. They're such a great resource for us. I can ask any sort of weird off-the-wall question, and someone there will have, like, specific experience with that. So um, they're a huge resource for us. I also, you know, I tend to use our – I, I, I use the USDA as a resource. I mean, the USDA has a, a small plant help desk where you can submit uh, questions right to them, and you will get an answer back from, like, someone who is involved in writing that policy. You really, you know, you, you get good answers from that. It's not just some throwaway thing they do. And then, and then really, I mean, it's again, I, I come back to it's important to have a good network of people who work in this realm and who, you know, no matter what, weird situation you find yourself in, someone out there has already navigated that. And I think that, you know, it's so important to have that network where you can sort of tap in and just say, hey, you know, who who's dealt with this before? Who's seen this particular issue? And, and nine times out of ten, you'll get somebody who's who has been there, done that, and can tell you exactly, you know, how they handled it. Yeah, that's super important, just talking to people and getting answers straight from the source of you know, personal experience is everything. So how can we support Bill or the Mad River Food Hub or both or some of your clients? Well, and I especially say, from afar. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, if, if anyone out there ever finds themselves in Wadesfield, Vermont, I'm happy to show people around, take you to the farmer's market, introduce you to pretty much everybody there. But I mean, can really, I give you know, them your email, Bill at MadRiverFoodHub.com? Yeah, email me, please. We just Great. just launched a new website today. Check that out. Shameless <laughs> plug. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, it's. I I think that the best thing that people can do, sort of in regards to Mad River Food Hub, is look at what we're doing and see how aspects of it might apply to to your community in in your area. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that Mad River Food Hub is appropriate for every single little, you know, locale um, <laughs> in the U.S. Or, or every single area. But I do think that there are aspects of what we do that can benefit 
pretty much any community, storage or processing space, or even just somebody like me to sit there and, you know, listen to your problems. You know, I mean, some days, some days I play psychologist, I feel like, you know, but it's, <laughs> I'm there to, I'm there to sort of talk through issues that my customers might have. So, you know, there, that, that's a good way to be a resource for people. Any products that may be headed towards Georgia or down the East Coast? Vermont's doing such a great job on this stuff, not to not to you know, humble brag a little bit, I guess, but, <laughs> you know, there are so many farms up here doing awesome stuff. In terms of out-of-state, uh, one of our big customers is Vermont Salumi. He's doing um, a pretty big charcuterie operation out of our dry curing facility. Mm-hmm. You might see him down your way. He, I don't know if he's gotten quite that far down there yet, but he's in – he was actually – he was out in Denver, so, uh, you know, he's got stuff out there. So check that out. That might be the one you might find. All right. That is awesome. And then before we end this, can you tell me what your favorite meat product is? Oh, man. I'm like asking you to pick a favorite child, a favorite limb. I know it's a big question. You know, I love a good beef stew. Um, Okay. I know that's not necessarily like, like a cut of meat, but like just a good hearty beef stew with carrots and potatoes and and all that. Love it. Can't beat it. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, any final words before we wrap it up? Words of wisdom, words of inspiration, tasty words, shameless plug words, anything else that you need to say before this is over? Oh, you know, I got so much to say, but I think I think we've we've covered some good ground tonight. So, uh, you know, <laughs> anything else about say. regenerative agriculture or or meat farming or production in in general? I feel like we could we could have another podcast episode about that. Well, you know, so here's here's the let me be brief and just say as I as I sit here and I look out at my turkeys wandering around the yard, you know, I think that regenerative agriculture can be done on a small scale. It doesn't have to necessarily be a commercial venture. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are way better people than I, more qualified people than, than I am to sort of talk about this. But, you know, regenerative agriculture can be keeping a couple of laying hens in, your, in the backyard of your apartment or ha- putting a beehive on the roof of a, a building downtown. You know, it doesn't have to be this, like, 80-acre grazing pasture. You know, you can you can do it on a small scale, and I think – Every little bit helps. That's great perspective to hear. I need to hear that more often. I'm sure somebody else out there does, too. And then also, on another note, your butchery classes. I'm like, I want to come to your week-long butchery class. Do you well, know when yeah. the next one's going to be? We're doing one. Uh, we got one scheduled for November, and we have one scheduled for January, I think. Okay. And when is the best time of year to visit Vermont, in your opinion? Well, so November would be the tail end of the good time. Um, Unless you are really into skiing, I would say probably avoid January. Um, Okay. And we'll have some dates dates in the spring as well, so like spring and summer probably. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I want to come. I want to make that happen. (laughs) That is awesome. Well, Bill, I cannot thank you enough for recording for the Law Farm Podcast and just for chit-chatting with me about butchery and and Vermont and farming. This has been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. 
Check out the description of the podcast or thelawfarm.com for more information on the resources mentioned in today's episode. I want to give a big thank you to Andy Kez for sharing her music with the Law Farm podcast. A link to the full song on iTunes is in the description. As always, eat well, be inspired, and support your local food systems.